A Model of Christian Charity by John Winthrop. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by A Founder's Keeper, The Progressing America Project. A Model of Christian Charity God Almighty in His most holy and wise providence hath so disposed of the condition of mankind, as in all times some must be rich, some poor, some high and eminent in power and dignity, others mean and in submission. The Reason Hereof First Reason First to hold conformity with the rest of his world, being delighted to show forth the glory of his wisdom in the variety and difference of the creatures, and the glory of his power in ordering all these differences for the preservation and good of the whole, and the glory of his greatness, that it is the glory of princes to have many officers, so this great king will have many stewards, counting himself more honored in dispensing his gifts to man by man, than if he did it by his own immediate hands. Second reason. Secondly, that he might have the more occasion to manifest the work of his spirit, first upon the wicked in moderating and restraining them, so that the rich and mighty should not eat up the poor, nor the poor and despised rise up against and shake off their yoke. Secondly, in the regenerate, in exercising his graces in them, as in the great ones, their love, mercy, gentleness, temperance, etc., and in the poor and inferior sort, their faith, patience, obedience, etc. Third reason. Thirdly, that every man might have need of others, and from hence they might be all knit more nearly together in the bonds of brotherly affection. From hence it appears plainly that no man is made more honorable than another, or more wealthy, etc., out of any particular and singular respect to himself, but for the glory of his Creator, and the common good of the creature, man. Therefore God still reserves the property of these gifts to himself as Ezekiel 16, 17. He therefore calls wealth, his gold and his silver, and Proverbs 3, 9. He claims their service as his due, quote, Honor the Lord with thy riches, end quote, etc. All men being thus, by divine providence, ranked into two sorts, rich and poor. Under the first are comprehended all such as are able to live comfortably by their own means duly improved, and all others are poor according to the former distribution. There are two rules whereby we are to walk one towards another, justice and mercy. These are always distinguished in their act and in their object, yet may they both concur in the same subject in each respect as sometimes there may be an occasion of showing mercy to a rich man in some sudden danger or distress, and also doing of mere justice to a poor man in regard of some particular contract, etc. There is likewise a double law by which we are regulated in our conversation towards another. In both the former respects, the law of nature and the law of grace, that is, the moral law or the law of the gospel, to omit the rule of justice as not properly belonging to this purpose, otherwise than it may fall into consideration in some particular cases. By the first of these laws, man as he was enabled so withal, 
is commanded to love his neighbor as himself. Upon this ground stands all the precepts of the moral law, which concerns our dealings with men. To apply this to the works of mercy, this law requires two things. First, that every man afford his help to another in every want or distress. Secondly, that he perform this out of the same affection which makes him careful of his own goods, according to the words of our Savior, from Matthew seven twelve, Whatsoever ye would, that men should do to you. This was practiced by Abraham and Lot, in entertaining the angels and the old man of Gibeah. The law of grace, or of the gospel, hath some difference from the former, the law of nature, as in these respects. First, the law of nature was given to man in the estate of innocence. This of the gospel in the estate of regeneracy. Secondly, the former propounds one man to another as the same flesh and image of God. This as a brother in Christ also, and in the communion of the same spirit, and so teacheth to put a difference between Christians and others. Do good to all, especially to the household of faith. Upon this ground, the Israelites were to put a difference between the brethren of such as were strangers, though not of the Canaanites. Thirdly, the law of nature would give no rules for dealing with enemies, for all are to be considered as friends in the state of innocence, but the gospel commands love to an enemy. Proof. If thine enemy hunger, feed him. Quote, Love your enemies. Do good to them that hate you. End quote. Matthew 5.44 This law of the gospel propounds likewise a difference of seasons and occasions. There is a time when a Christian must sell all and give to the poor, as they did in the apostles' times. There is a time also when Christians, though they give not all yet, must give beyond their ability, as they of Macedonia. 2 Corinthians 8 Likewise, community of perils calls for extraordinary liberality, and so doth community in some special service for the church. Lastly, when there is no other means whereby our Christian brother may be relieved in his distress, we must help him beyond our ability, rather than tempt God in putting him upon help by miraculous or extraordinary means. This duty of mercy is exercised in the kinds, giving, lending, and forgiving, of a debt. Question. What rule shall a man observe, in giving, in respect of the measure? Answer. If the time and occasion be ordinary, he is to give out of his abundance. Let him lay aside, as God hath blessed him. If the time and occasion be extraordinary, he must be ruled by them, taking this withal, that then a man cannot likely do too much, especially if he may leave himself and his family under probable means of comfortable subsistence. Objection. A man must lay up for posterity. The fathers lay up for posterity and children, and he is worse than an infidel that provideth not for his own. Answer. For the first, it is plain that it being spoken by way of comparison, it must be meant of the ordinary and usual course of fathers, and cannot extend to times and occasions extraordinary. For the other place the Apostle, 
speaks against such as walked inordinately, and it is without question that he is worse than an infidel who through his own sloth and voluptuousness shall neglect to provide for his family. Objection. The wise man's eyes are in his head, saith Solomon, and foreseeth the plague. Therefore he must forecast and lay up against evil times, when he or his may stand in need of all he can gather. Answer. This very argument Solomon useth to persuade to liberality. Ecclesiastes 11. Quote, Cast thy bread upon the waters, for thou knowest not what evil may come upon the land. End quote. Luke 16, 9. Quote, Make you friends of the riches of iniquity. End quote. You will ask how this shall be. Very well. For first, he that gives to the poor, lends to the Lord, and he will repay him, even in this life a hundredfold to him or his. The righteous is ever merciful and lendeth, and his seed enjoyeth the blessing. And besides, we know what advantage it will be to us, in the day of account, when many such witnesses shall stand forth for us, to witness the improvement of our talent. And I would know of those, who plead so much for laying up for time to come, whether they hold that to be gospel. Matthew 6.19 Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, etc. If they acknowledge it, to what extent will they allow it? If only to those primitive times, let them consider the reason whereupon our Savior grounds it. The first is that they are subject to the moth, the rust, the thief. Secondly, they will steal away the heart. Quote, Where the treasure is, there will your heart be also. End quote. The reasons are of like force at all times. Therefore the exhortation must be general and perpetual, with always in respect of the love and affection to riches, and in regard of the things themselves, when any special service for the church, or particular distress of our brother, do call for the use of them, otherwise it is not only lawful but necessary to lay up, as Joseph did, to have ready upon such occasions, as the Lord, whose stewards we are of them, shall call for them from us. Christ gives us an instance of the first, when he sent his disciples for the donkey, and bids them answer, the owner thus, quote, The Lord hath need of him, end quote. So when the tabernacle was to be built, he sends his people to call for their silver and gold, etc., and yields no other reason but that it was for his work. When Elisha comes to the widow of Sarepta, and finds her preparing to make ready her pittance for herself and family, he bids her first provide for him. He challenges first God's part, which she must first give, before she must serve her own family. All these teach us that the Lord looks, that when he is pleased to call for his right in anything we have, our own interests we have, must stand aside till his turn be served. For the other, we need look no further than to that of 1 John 3.17. Quote, he who hath this world's goods, and seeth his brother to need, and shuts up his compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Which comes punctually to this conclusion, If thy brother be in want, and thou canst help him, thou needest not make doubt of what thou shouldest do. If thou lovest God, thou must help him. Question. 
what rule must we observe in lending? Answer. Thou must observe whether thy brother hath present, or probable, or possible means of repaying thee. If there be none of those, thou must give him according to his necessity, rather than lend him as he requires or requests. If he hath present means of repaying thee, thou art to look at him not as an act of mercy, but by way of commerce, wherein thou art to walk by the rule of justice. But if his means of repaying thee be only probable or possible, then he is an object of thy mercy. Thou must lend him, though there be danger of losing it. Deuteronomy 15, 7 and 8 quote, If any of thy brethren be poor, thou shalt lend him sufficient. End quote. That men might not shift off this duty by the apparent hazard, he tells them that though the year of Jubilee were at hand, when he must remit it, if he were not able to repay it before, yet he must lend him, and that cheerfully. It may not grieve thee to give him, saith he. And because some might object, why so I should soon impoverish myself and my family, he adds, with all thy work, etc., for our Saviour said, Matt 5.42, From him that would borrow of thee, turn not away. End quote. Question. What rule must we observe in forgiving a debt? Answer. Whether thou didst lend by way of commerce or in mercy, if he hath nothing to pay thee, thou must forgive, except in cause where thou hast a surety or a lawful pledge. Deuteronomy 15, 1 and 2. Every seventh year, the creditor was to quit that which he lent to his brother, if he were poor, as appears in verse 4. Quote, Save when there shall be no poor with thee. End quote. In all these and like cases, Christ gives a general rule, Matthew 7, 12. Quote, Whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye the same to them. End quote. Question. What rule must we observe and walk by in cause of community of peril? Answer. The same as before, but with more enlargement towards others and less respect towards ourselves in our own right. Hence it was, that in the primitive church they sold all, had all things in common, neither did any man say that which he possessed was his own. Likewise, in their return out of the captivity, because the work was great for the restoring of the church, and the danger of enemies was common to all, Nehemiah directs the Jews to liberality, and readiness in remitting their debts to their brethren, and disposing liberally to such as wanted, and stand not upon their dues, which they might have demanded of them. Thus did some of our forefathers in times of persecution in England, and so did many of the faithful of other churches, whereof we keep an honorable remembrance of them, and it is to be observed that both in scriptures and latter stories of the churches, that such as have been most bountiful to the poor saints, especially in those extraordinary times and occasions, God hath left them highly commended to posterity, as Zacchaeus, Cornelius, Dorcas, Bishop Hooper, the Cutler of Brussels, and diverse others. Observe again, that the scripture gives no caution to restrain any from being over-liberal this way, but all men to the liberal and cheerful practice hereof, by the sweeter promises, as to instance one for many, Isaiah 58, 6-9. Is not this the fast I have chosen, to loose the bonds of wickedness, 
to take off the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke, to deal thy bread to the hungry, and to bring the poor that wander into thy house, when thou seest the naked to cover them, and then shall thy light break forth, as the morning in thy health shall grow speedily. Thy righteousness shall go before God, and the glory of the Lord shall embrace thee, then thou shalt call, and the Lord shall answer thee, quote, etc. And from 2.10, If thou pour out thy soul to the hungry, then shall thy light spring out in darkness, and the Lord shall guide thee continually, and satisfy thy soul in the drought, and make fat thy bones. Thou shalt be like a watered garden, and they shalt be of thee that shall build the old waste places, end quote, etc. On the contrary, most heavy curses are laid upon such as are straightened towards the Lord and his people. Judges 5.23 Curse ye Merosh, because they came not to help the Lord. End quote. Quote, he who shutteth his ears from hearing the cry of the poor, he shall cry and shall not be heard. End quote. Matthew 25 quote, Go ye cursed into everlasting fire. End quote etc. Quote, I was hungry and ye fed me not. End quote. Second Corinthians nine six. Quote, he that soweth sparingly shall reap sparingly. End quote. Having already set forth the practice of mercy according to the rule of God's law, it will be useful to lay open the grounds of it also, being the other part of the commandment and that is the affection from which this exercise of mercy must arise. The Apostle tells us that this love is the fulfilling of the law, not that it is enough to love our brother and so no further, but in regard to the excellency of his parts, giving any motion to the other as the soul to the body, and the power it hath to set all the faculties at work in the outward exercise of this duty, as when we bid one to make the clock strike, he doth not lay hand on the hammer, which in the immediate instrument of the sound, but sets on work the first mover or main wheel, knowing that will certainly produce the sound which he intends. So the way to draw men to the works of mercy is not by force of argument from the goodness or necessity of the work, for though this cause may enforce a rational mind to some present act of mercy, as is frequent in experience, yet it cannot work such a habit in a soul, as shall make it prompt upon all occasions to produce the same effect, but by framing these affections of love in the heart which will as naturally bring forth the other, as any cause doth produce the effect. The definition which the scripture gives us of love is this. Love is the bond of perfection. First, it is a bond or ligament. Secondly, it makes the work perfect. There is no body but consists of parts and that which knits these parts together, gives the body its perfection, because it makes each part so contiguous to others, as thereby they do mutually participate with each other, both in strength and infirmity, in pleasure and pain. To instance in the most perfect of all bodies, Christ and his church make one body. The several parts of this body considered apart before they were united, were as disproportionate and as much disordering as so many contrary qualities or elements. But when Christ comes, and by his Spirit and love, knits all these parts to himself and each to other, 
it is become the most perfect and best proportioned body in the world. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Christ, by whom all the body being knit together by every joint for the furniture thereof, according to the effectual power which is in the measure of every perfection of parts, a glorious body without spot or wrinkle, the ligaments hereof being Christ, or his love, for Christ is love. 1 John 4, 8. So this definition is right. Love is the bond of perfection. From hence we may frame these conclusions. First of all, true Christians are of one body in Christ. 1 Corinthians 12. Ye are the body of Christ and members of their part. All the parts of this body being thus united, are made so contiguous in a special relation as they must needs partake of each other's strength and uniformity, joy and sorrow, weal and woe. If one member suffers, all suffer with it. If one be in honor, all rejoice with it. Secondly, the ligaments of this body which knit together are love. Thirdly, no body can be perfect which wants its proper ligament. Fourthly, all the parts of this body being thus united are made so contiguous in a special relation as they must needs partake of each other's strength and infirmity, joy and sorrow, weal and woe. 1 Corinthians 12.26 If one member suffers, all suffer with it. If one be in honor, all rejoice with it. Fifthly, this sensitivity and sympathy of each other's conditions will necessarily infuse into each part a native desire and endeavor to strengthen, defend, preserve, and comfort the other. To insist a little on this conclusion being the product of all the former, the truth hereof will appear both by precept and pattern. 1 John 3.16 We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. End quote. Galatians 6, 2. Quote, Bear ye another's burden, and so fulfill the law of Christ. End quote. For patterns, we have that first of our Savior who, out of his good will in obedience to his Father, becoming a part of this body and being knit with it in the bond of love, found such a native sensitivity of our infirmities and sorrows, as he willingly yielded himself to death, to ease the infirmities of the rest of his body, and so healed their sorrows. From the like sympathy of parts did the apostles and many thousands of the saints lay down their lives for Christ. Again, the like we may see in the members of this body among themselves. Romans 9 Paul could have been contented to have been separated from Christ, that the Jews might not be cut off from the body. It is very observable what we professeth of this affectionate partaking with every member. Quote, Who is weak, saith he, and I am not weak? Who is offended, and I burn not? End quote. And again, 2 Corinthians 7.13 Therefore we are comforted because ye were comforted. End quote. Of Epaphroditus he speaketh, Philippians 2, 25-30, that he regarded not his own life to do him service. So Phoebe and others are called the servants of the church. 
now it is apparent that they served not for wages or by constraint but out of love the like we shall find in the histories of the church in all ages the sweet sympathy of affections which was in the members of this body one towards another their cheerfulness in serving and suffering together how liberal they were without repining harborers without grudging and helpful without reproaching and all from hence because they had fervent love amongst them which only makes the practice of mercy constant and easy the next consideration is how this love comes to be wrought adam in his first estate was a perfect model of mankind in all their generations and in him this love was perfected in regard of the habit but adam himself rent from his creator rent all his posterity also one from another whence it comes that every man is born with this principle in him to love and seek himself only and thus a man continueth till christ comes and takes possession of the soul and infuseth another principle love to god and our brother and this latter having continual supply from christ as the head and root by which he is united gets predominant in the soul so by little and little expels the former first john four seven love cometh of god and every one that loveth is born of god so that this love is the fruit of the new birth and none can have it but the new creature now when this quality is thus formed in the souls of men it works like the spirit upon the dry bones ezekiel thirty seven seven quote, bone came to bone end quote. it gathers together the scattered bones or perfect old man adam and knits them into one body again in christ whereby a man is become again a living soul the third consideration is concerning the exercise of this love which is twofold inward or outward the outward hath been handled in the former preface of this discourse from unfolding the other we must take in our way that maxim of philosophy quote, simile simile gaudet end quote, or like will to like for as of things which are turned with disaffection to each other the ground of it is from a dissimilitude or arising from the contrary or different nature of the things themselves for the ground of love is an apprehension of some resemblance in the things loved to that which affects it this is the cause why the lord loves the creature so far as it hath any of his image in it he loves his elect because they are like himself he beholds them in his beloved son so a mother loves her child because she thoroughly conceives a resemblance of herself in it thus it is between the members of christ each discerns by the work of the spirit his own image and resemblance in another and therefore cannot but love him as he loves himself now when the soul which is of a sociable nature finds anything like to itself it is like adam when eve was brought to him she must be one with himself this is flesh of my flesh saith he and bone of my bone so the soul conceives a great delight in it therefore she desires nearness and familiarity with it she hath a great propensity to do it good and receives much content in it as fearing the miscarriage of her beloved she bestows in it the inmost closet of her heart she will not endure that it shall want any good which she can give it 
if by occasion she be withdrawn from the company of it, she is still looking towards the place where she left her beloved. If she heard it groan, she is with it presently. If she find it sad and disconsolate, she sighs and moans with it. She hath no such joy as to see her beloved merry and thriving. If she see it wronged, she cannot hear it without passion. She sets no bounds to her affections, nor hath any thought of reward. She finds recompense enough in the exercise of her love towards it. We may see this acted to life in Jonathan and David. Jonathan, a valiant man endued with the spirit of love, so soon as he discovered the same spirit in David, had presently his heart knit to him by this ligament of love, so that it is said, he loved him as his own soul. He takes so great pleasure in him, that he strips himself to adorn his beloved. His father's kingdom was not so precious to him as his beloved David. David shall have it with all his heart. Himself desires no more, but that he may be near him, to rejoice in his good. He chooseth to converse with him in the wilderness, even to the hazard of his own life, rather than with the great couriers in his father's palace. When he sees danger towards him, he spares neither rare pains nor peril to direct it. When injury was offered his beloved David, he would not bear it, though from his own father. And when they must part for a season only, they thought their hearts would have broke for sorrow, had not their affections found vent by abundance of tears. Other instances might be brought to show the nature of this affection, as of Ruth and Naomi, and many others, but this truth is cleared enough. If any shall object that it is not possible that love shall be bred or upheld without hope of requital, it is granted, but that is not our cause, for this love is always under reward. It never gives, but it always receives with advantage. First, in regard that among the members of the same body, love and affection are reciprocal in a most equal and sweet kind of commerce. Secondly, in regard of the pleasure and content that the exercise of love carries with it, as we may see in the natural body. The mouth is at all the pains to receive and mince the food which serves for the nourishment of all the other parts of the body, yet it hath no cause to complain, for first the other parts send back, by several passages, a due proportion of the same nourishment, in a better form for the strengthening and comforting the mouth. Secondly, the labor of the mouth is accompanied with such pleasure and content as far exceeds the pains it takes. So is it in all the labor of love among Christians. The party loving reaps love again, as was showed before, which the soul covets more than all the wealth in the world. Thirdly, nothing yields more pleasure and content to the soul than when it finds that which it may love fervently. For to love and live beloved is the soul's paradise both here and in heaven. In the state of wedlock there be many comforts to learn, out of the troubles of that condition, but let such as have tried the most, say if there be any sweetness in that condition comparable to the exercise of mutual love. From the former considerations arise these conclusions. First, this love among Christians is a real thing, not imaginary. Secondly, this love is as absolutely necessary to the being of the body of Christ as the sinews and other ligaments of a natural body are to the being of that body. 
Thirdly, this love is a divine, spiritual nature, free, active, strong, courageous, permanent, undervaluing all things beneath its proper object and of all the graces. This makes us nearer to resemble the virtues of our Heavenly Father. Fourthly, it rests in the love and welfare of its beloved. For the full certain knowledge of those truths concerning the nature, use, and excellency of this grace, that which the Holy Ghost hath left recorded, 1 Corinthians 13, may give full satisfaction, which is needful for every true member of this lovely body of the Lord Jesus, to work upon their hearts by prayer, meditation, continual exercise at least of the special influence of this grace, till Christ be formed in them, and they in him, all in each other, knit together by this bond of love. It rests now to make some application of this discourse, by the present design, which gave the occasion of writing it. Herein are four things to be propounded. First, the persons. Secondly, the work. Thirdly, the end. Fourthly, the means. First, for the persons. We are a company professing ourselves fellow members of Christ, in which respect only, though we were absent from each other many miles, and had our employments as far distant, yet we ought to account ourselves knit together by this bond of love, and live in the exercise of it, if we would have comfort of our being in Christ. This was notorious in the practice of the Christians in former times, as is testified of the Waldenses, from the mouth of one of the adversaries Aeneas Silvius, quote, Mutuo ament pene antiquum norent, end quote. They used to love any of their own religion, even before they were acquainted with them. Secondly, for the work we have in hand. It is by mutual consent, through a special overvaluing providence and a more than ordinary approbation of the churches of Christ, to seek out a place of cohabitation and consortship under a due form of government, both civil and ecclesiastical. In cases such as this, the care of the public must oversway all private respects, by which not only conscience but mere civil policy doth bind us for it is a true rule that particular estates cannot subsist in the ruin of the public thirdly the end is to improve our lives to do more service to the lord the comfort and increase of the body of christ whereof we are members that ourselves and posterity may be the better preserved from the common corruptions of this evil world to serve the Lord and work out our salvation under the power and purity of His holy ordinances. Fourthly, for the means whereby this must be effected. They are twofold, a conformity with the work and goal we aim at. These we see are extraordinary, therefore we must not content ourselves with usual ordinary means. Whatsoever we did or ought to have done, when we lived in England, the same must we do, and more also, where we go. That which the most in their churches maintain as truth in profession only, we must bring into familiar and constant practice, as in this duty of love, we must love brotherly without dissimulation, we must love one another with a pure heart fervently, we must bear one another's burdens, we must not look only to our own things, but also on the things of our brethren. Neither must we think that the Lord will bear with such failings at our hands, as he doth from those among whom we have lived, and that for these three reasons. First, in regard of the more near bond of marriage between him and us, 
wherein he hath taken us to be his, after a most strict and peculiar manner, which will make him the more jealous of our love and obedience. So he tells the people of Israel, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for your transgressions. Secondly, because the Lord will be sanctified in them that come near him. We know that there were many that corrupted the service of the Lord, some setting up altars before his own, others offering both strange fire and strange sacrifices also. Yet there came no fire from heaven, or other sudden judgment upon them, as did upon Nadab and Abihu, whom yet we may think did not sin presumptuously. Thirdly, when God gives a special commission, he looks to have it strictly observed in every article. When he gave Saul a commission to destroy Amalek, he indented him with upon certain articles, and because he failed in one of the least, and that upon a fair pretense, it lost him the kingdom, which should have been his reward, if he had observed his commission. Thus stands the cause between God and us. We are entered into covenant with him for this work. We have taken out a commission. The Lord hath given us leave to draw our own articles. We have professed to enterprise these and those accounts, upon these and those ends. We have hereupon besought him of favor and blessing. Now, if the Lord shall please to hear us, and bring us in peace to the place we desire, then hath he ratified this covenant and sealed our commission, and will expect a strict performance of the articles contained in it. But if we shall neglect the observation of these articles which are the ends we have propounded, and, dissembling with our God, shall fall to embrace this present world and prosecute our carnal intentions, seeking great things for ourselves and our posterity, the Lord will surely break out in wrath against us, and be revenged of such people, and make us know the price of the breach of such a covenant. Now the only way to avoid this shipwreck and to provide for our posterity, is to follow the counsel of Micah, to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. For this end we must be knit together, in this work as one man. We must entertain each other in brotherly affection. We must be willing to abridge ourselves of our superfluities, for the supply of others' necessities. We must uphold a familiar commerce together in all meekness, gentleness, patience, and liberality. And we must delight in each other, make others' conditions our own, rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together, always having before our eyes our commission and community in the work, as members of the same body. So shall we keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Lord will be our God, and delight to dwell among us, as his own people, and will command a blessing upon us in all our ways, so that we shall see much more of his wisdom, power, goodness and truth, than formerly we have been acquainted with. We shall find that the God of Israel is among us, when ten of us shall be able to resist a thousand of our enemies, when he shall make us a praise, and glory that men shall say of succeeding plantations, quote, May the Lord make it like that of New England, end quote. For we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. So that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken, and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, 
we shall be made a story and a byword through the world. We shall open the mouths of enemies to speak evil of the ways of God, and all professors for God's sake. We shall shame the faces of many of God's worthy servants, and cause their prayers to be turned into curses upon us, till we be consumed out of the good land whither we are going. And to shut this discourse with that exhortation of Moses, that faithful servant of the Lord, in his last farewell to Israel, Deuteronomy 30, quote, Beloved, there is now set forth before us life and death, good and evil, end quote, in that we are commanded this day to love the Lord our God, and to love one another, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his ordinance and his laws, and the articles of our covenant with him, that we may live and be multiplied, and that the Lord our God may bless us in the land whither we go to possess it. But if our hearts shall turn away, so that we will not obey, but shall be seduced, and worship other gods, our pleasure and profits, and serve them, it is propounded upon us this day, we shall surely perish out of the good land whether we pass over this vast sea to possess it. Therefore let us choose life, that we and our seed may live, by obeying his voice and cleaving to him, for he is our life and our prosperity. End of A Model of Christian Charity by John Winthrop